Hi, this is Doug Bradley, welcoming you to the Hellraiser podcast. And you'd better keep listening to the Hellraiser podcast, or I will tear your soul apart. Hello, and welcome to the Hellraiser podcast. And who was that introducing the show? <laughs> it was uh, one Doug Bradley. That was quite interesting, wasn't it, Phil? Uh, it was very interesting, yeah. This is a very special podcast for you, ladies and gentlemen listening. We are currently at the London Film and Comic Con 2011, being held at London's Earl's Court. And there are lots of lovely Hellraiser guests here. And we were very, very lucky to be able to speak to a few of them and interview them for the podcast. So we're bringing those interviews to you right now. So I think there's quite a lot to get through. Let's crack straight on with the first one, which was with Ashley Lawrence, who, of course, plays Kirsty in the Hellraiser films. So here's what she had to say. Okay, we're very lucky now to be having a little chat with Ashley Lawrence. Hello, Ashley. Hi there. How are you today? I'm really well, thank you. Excellent. Right, I've got a few questions for you, so let's kick straight off. Uh, first of all, what was your first impression when you saw the script for the first film? Well, um, Clive writes the way he writes so even in a screenplay it, it felt so visual and so lyrical and and every character had a, a different cadence and a, and a different sort of energy to them and it was it was a journey even in the script yeah um, and do you remember what your first thoughts about when you saw the the makeup for the Cenobites for example oh I just thought it was really cool did any part of you think that it might be a bit too much, a bit too scary for the audiences. Oh, oh no, they didn't look scary to me at all because I knew them, and and the Cenobites are my friends. So, <laughs> um, I and I had screen tested with Doug already out of makeup. Doug um, acted like my father in the scene at the Chinese restaurant, and also as Pinhead in my screen test. So I had met him prior to that, and most of the time filming, um, I wasn't on set with the Cenobites because they were in makeup. So. Uh, the predominance of, of my work was to a piece of masking tape. All right, okay. Did you have any idea when you were doing the filming how big the film could possibly be? Um, not at all. I, I, I didn't have any experience doing films. I was very, very lucky, I knew, to be involved with people who I felt were so talented. But, um, and you could feel on the set that we were making something special, but to have it still have this sort of longevity is amazing. Do you remember when you first discovered how big the film was becoming when it was released? Oh, I um, I had no idea um, up until kind of recently that it was it was so extraordinary in its in its appeal. I, I didn't know. Doug used to tell me, and I, I didn't ever see it firsthand until a few years ago. Although I would get recognized in like all night Xerox places and stuff when I looked particularly tired and, and worn through, somebody would come up and be like, you're that girl. <laughs> and I'd be like, oh. What did you think when you first heard about the sequel, the first sequel? Um, I was signed to do Hellraiser 2 when I signed on to do Hellraiser 1. So somebody had a feeling about it from the beginning. Because I think it was, they started talking about the, the sequel even before the first one was released. Yeah. And so, you, you had no idea even when you were making the second one that the first one was out there and was doing really well. Well, I, I knew my experience of the first one, and I actually wasn't organically happy with how um, passive Kirstie was in the second one. Because I felt that it was sort of counter, uh, counterintuitive 
to how she would be having gone through all of that experience to then turn around and be like, 16-year-old mute girl, could you please show me the way? Made no sense to me whatsoever. But, you know, Pete Atkins is a dear friend of mine and I think he's super talented, the writer. So it was, it was nothing against them. It was just a personal, uh, intimate experience with Kirstie as a character. I was like, no, no. But, you know, you do what you do. Do you have a favorite memory from making the first two films, or a, or a least favorite memory, or at least thing you enjoyed least during the filming process? Um, I wasn't too fond of the maggots. That <laughs> he's laughing. <laughs> that day, um, the maggots weren't in the script. That was a surprise. And I remember that was the day that the investors were there in their three-piece suits, and they were very proud to see where their money was going, and they were grinning at me. And Clive comes up to me, and Clive can get me to do anything. And he he talked to me like, you know, he sounds like a beetle, and, and he's glorious. And he's like, so, uh, come over here. And he showed me a box of wriggling maggots with the maggot wrangler, because apparently maggots need wrangling. And they put uh, sand or um, sawdust in the box with all the maggots so they don't stick together. So what happens is they rub their little bodies together and make this sort of like shh sound, which is really creepy enough. But then I find out that the corpse is gonna drop it down my shirt, which before every take, I was supposed to look like I was sweating. So they would spray me down. So the maggots stuck. But Clive assured me, and this wasn't actually a source of comfort, that the maggots wouldn't hurt me as long as I was alive. <laughs> Um, but after after those takes, I had maggots, like, in my bra. I had maggots stuck to my jeans. I had it. It was a good um, kind of barometer to not be grossed out by normal things, for sure. Okay, so can we talk about Hellraiser Six? Sure. Hellseeker. Um, what was your first involvement in that project? Uh, three days before they started filming, Doug Bradley called me at home and said, there's a character in this script that's named Kirsty, and I talked to the director about you doing a cameo. Would you want to do that? They'd have to rewrite it some. And I thought it'd be really cool to go work with Doug again. So when I went out there, um, there wasn't really a way in the overview to, to rewrite Kirsty because she just wouldn't behave like that so they made it a dream I'm making little quotes with my hands um, they made it a dream to sort of justify the fact that she would never in a zillion years have acted that way okay so it wasn't gonna be Kirsty Cotton originally in the script then no oh wow so what was your reaction when you found out how little screen time you'd have on on screen really in the film Oh, um, it wasn't a problem because I knew that it was a cameo and I just had really wanted to work with Doug again and I had spoken with the director over the phone who was a DP so I knew it would be shot well. It was it was mostly just a hoot. Oh, and um, I was acting out of character for Kirsty, so there was that too because it was all in a dream. Again, quotes with my fingers. <laughs> because when, when fans found out you were coming back, everyone got very, very excited and I think some were a little disappointed you weren't in it as much as they would have liked. Oh yeah, no, I would have been, that, I, I heard that too, which was really wonderful that they would have felt that way, but I, I, I felt like if it was actually Kirsty, that that would have been something different, but because this was, again, finger quotes, a dream, that it was just like a couple days in Canada. Okay, so in your opinion, is the Kirsty from Hellseeker different to the Kirsty from the first two films? 
Kirsty from Hellseeker is a dream. Kirsty from Hellseeker isn't based on any reality other than the lead character's experience of himself. Okay, so one thing people might not know is that you're an artist and you've been doing a lot of art recently. And we've seen some of your work and it's, it's really good, it's brilliant. Is that something that you're pursuing more at the moment than acting or something that you're more interested in doing at the moment? I, I wouldn't say that it's more. I, I find that I paint better when I act and I act better when I paint. It's all sort of the same source. But um, the painting I can, I can do completely on my own and I've done it since I was very small. So it's... It's something I've always done. I've just now started to make it more accessible and actually allow people to interact with it. Okay. And is there, is there somewhere we can go online to have a look at your artwork? Uh, sure. There's um, ashleylawrence.com or ashleylawrenceart.com. Okay, great. Thanks. Okay, and anything else you've been doing recently? Oh, I just finished um, a video. I, I had done the Slipknot video, and uh, Product of Hate is a band that... Um, wanted me to do their video where they have me fully sleeved in tattoos and cutting off people's arms and ears and dancing on a chipper and it's it's really fun and Bob Kurtzman um, who uh, actually did the Reservoir Dogs special effects where they chopped the ear off he was working on that video so we had all of all of that special effect and what's the name of the song Unholy Manipulator oh wow okay we'll check that out definitely yeah, it's a lot of fun so I have one final question for you, yeah. and that is, would you be interested in doing any more Hellraiser films in the future? If Clive was involved. Only if Clive was involved? Well, uh, the thing is, he's, he's, so, he's so influential in the first film and my experience of that character, but um, I think it'd be a hoot if they do do a remake to just even deliver coffee in the background because it'd be funny. But um, I, it's, it would depend on who was doing it and how they were doing it. and what Of course. Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's a maybe. It's a, it's a really strong maybe. Okay. Well, thanks very much for talking to us, Ashley. It's been a complete pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. So there we are. That was our interview with Ashley Lawrence. Of course, we've got Doug Bradley, so stay tuned to listen to that. But there were some other actors here as well including Simon Bamford, who plays Butterball in the first two films, Oliver Smith, who of course plays Frank the Monster and Browning in the second one, and Nicholas Vince, who plays the Chatterer. And we managed to speak to all of them, and that was quite something, I think, wasn't it, Phil? Yes, it was. I think I'm quite quiet during these interviews because I was so starstruck. I know, and also I'm going to apologise now because I did get a bit nervous as well, and because of that we do tend to ask very similar questions to all of them. So if it's a bit repetitive from our point of view, I apologise. But it, we were both got really starstruck and nervous, which was very silly, but uh, that was how it was. Anyway, well, let's, let's crack on. These are our interviews. First one with Simon Bamford, who played Butterball. Here we go. OK, we're here now with Simon Bamford, who played Butterball in the first two Hellraiser films. Hello, Simon. Uh, hello, Peter. That's your very nice. Is that your actor's voice? That is my actor's voice. Yes, we've just been chatting before. Radio, radio podcast, podcast yes. voice. From my podcast voice should now. We do received pronunciation. Well, maybe we should, Simon. Yes. yes, yes. Why not? <laughs> um, first of all, let me ask you: What was your first reaction when you looked at the script for Hellraiser? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, it's it's kind of difficult. You think back, but it was a long time ago. It was like twenty six years ago when we first got the script. I think I. I I think it was one of uh, absolute awe. I think I was a little bit surprised 
A, to get the whole script, um, and of course, <laughs> as an actor, you do the normal thing. <laughs> you do the normal thing of going, okay, I'm not on that page, no, I'm not on that page, where are my scenes, where are my scenes, which is terrible. You know, you how many lines have I got? Yeah, yeah, how many lines? Line count. Um, and I did have lines. Actually, I had lines in the original script, but they're all plosives. Perhaps we prefer you, impossible. Um, and then when they finally got the makeup on, my, my, I had false teeth glued on top of my own teeth, and so my own lips couldn't get together. So you can't say impossible, or perhaps we prefer you without putting your lips together. Try it. <laughs> I'll try it later, I think. you. <laughs> you can't do it. It's impossible. So they just, they just took your lines away so they when took you my had lines the away and gave them to somebody else. It was a very black day. I cried that day. Aww. Nobody knew because I was inside the makeup. <laughs> Speaking of the makeup, what, what was your reaction when you first saw the makeup? Yours and also everyone else's. We did we did a screen test, a couple of screen tests. We, we went down and had a life life casts done for the insides of the makeup so that they were the exact same fitting for our heads. Uh, so that was a kind of almost a shape of things to come because they they encase you in plaster and stick a couple of straws up your nose and then say keep still for ages. But that was interesting. They had, um, they're supposed to destroy all the life casts afterwards, but they don't always. And they had Mick Jagger's, they just done Mick Jagger's body cast. So they had a uh, naked Mick Jagger kind of hanging up on the wall next to us. So that was quite interesting. Um, <laughs> yeah, respect, Mick. <laughs> um, uh, and then, yes, when we actually went to do the uh, uh, makeup tests, I suppose that was the kind of the real first sign of, uh, of what was to come it was two inches thick foam latex it, it was obviously skin tight so it took three of them to pull it down over my head uh, and there was a point where it was halfway on where uh, it was completely covering my mouth and my nose so if it got stuck at that point I would actually suffocate to death so that wasn't so nice and eventually they got it on and then I was completely blind uh, virtually deaf and I couldn't breathe through my nose. It's been really claustrophobic to be in there. It was horrendous. And, and on shoot days, they put us in there at five, six in the morning and take us out at eight at night. And, and you just sit in this makeup with your own thoughts, analyzing life, getting more and more depressed. Yeah. You mentioned the latex and watching the film, you would assume that the actor inside that was, was quite a big guy. And looking at you, you are not a big guy at all. Oh, that's so, very kind. I am, actually. I'm just holding it in. <laughs> so um, what was your reaction when you saw you know, how, how big this character was going to be and it would be perceived as a big, fat character? You, yes, it was interesting. to, to, to you, you, My instinct in that time, because um, I was only 20, early 20s, was, of course, you start doing the obvious must-do-a-larger larger man's kind of gait, <laughs> which I think I actually probably did do in the end. Um, and the other thing, which you're kind of trained to do with masks, is is to look at the mirror, look in the mirror, and work out what the mask's doing. But of course, being blind, I couldn't actually see anything. So I sat down with um, Doug Bradley, and I said to him, "Look, I'm going to move my face in the mask. If you could tell me what the mask is doing and what kind of expression, and then I'll know how the mask can work from that." So he said, "Okay." So we. Uh, I sat down and I started twitching my eyelashes, eyebrows, and uh, he said, well, there's nothing happening yet. And I went, okay, so I, anyway, my, my facial expressions got bigger and bigger and bigger until I was kind of um, gurning inside this mask. And he was saying, no, you still haven't started yet. It's still, basically, I could contort my face till the cows came home and it wouldn't, the mask wasn't going to move at all. So facially, there was nothing I could do. Uh, which was a little bit disappointing. I could get my tongue out, okay. hence why my tongue does come out in some scenes. It's yeah. about all I could do. It's got, your tongue's got quite a big role in, in <laughs> yeah, your character. Absolutely. 
but that was it. That was. So did they, did they always have the eyes closed up, even though you've got yes. the sunglasses on? In the second movie, I did ask them if the, if the character was going to take the sunglasses off, yeah. and they came back and say eventually and said no. So I gouged. I think each mask was like ten thousand pounds or something. I gouged holes in it because I just the idea of spending months in isolation was just it really was mental torture it was really horrible so what was your reaction when you saw the final film for the first time amazing I, I didn't get to I think the first time I saw it was at the local cinema my local cinema I didn't get to go to any of their previews so uh, yeah it was it was good it was uh, they, they kind of knew halfway through filming that it was going to be bigger than they expected it to be it was a very small budget movie and the rushes they had to send the rushes over to the states to the guys backing it and the excitement coming back from the states was getting bigger and bigger and bigger and our budget got bigger and bigger as we as we uh, so you were aware that it was there was a kind of an idea i didn't know at the time but on most films the, uh, the the staff on the films will tell the actors how wonderful it is and they'll always tell you how brilliant you are and they'll always <laughs> up you to give your confidence a boost. I didn't realise at the time that they do that anyway, but I think on that one it was probably genuine. And I, I believe that the, the second film started going ahead even before the first one was released. They started to plan it out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they changed the ending of the first film as we were filming it to make way for the sequel because they realised already that there will be a sequel. So there were the, uh, the tramp at the end and the flying demon none of that was in the I can't remember what the original ending was but none of that was in the original ending so. and what, what was your experience like working on the second one the second one was slight, obviously Clive wasn't there which was a shame because we're good friends and he's a lovely director uh, it was it was interesting because I could see a little bit it was still kind of tunnel vision so you couldn't see much um, I found the script of the second one slightly hard to take because you open the script and eventually it was just page after page after page of special effects. Mm. And actually in a script, they're quite dull to read. They don't really make any sense. And you, you think, well, this doesn't really relate to anything I'm doing. And, I, and it's boring. So, uh, so the finished product on the second one was very different to the script. Whereas on the first one, you could see all the way through from the script what it was going to be like. And what was your reaction when you saw the finished product of Hellraiser 2? I'm the, uh, pleasantly surprised. I liked, I liked the Escher um, references in the sets. Um, it was going in a different direction, but I think it still works. Um, obviously, Ken Cranham's wonderful. He's a joy to work with. He's such a nice bloke as well. He's, he's a wicked, wicked sense of humour. Um, yeah, it was good. Do you, do you still watch the films nowadays? I, I, I went to, name dropping now, but I went to stay with, um, I, I was doing some work over in Southwold uh, at the festival theatre there, and it's run by Jill Freud, and I was staying in her son-in-law's house, who's Richard Curtis. Uh, so I was staying at Richard Curtis's house, and, and Emma, Emma Freud, and uh, my nephew was staying with me, and he hadn't seen them, and they have this converted barn which they've converted into this screening room with this huge screen at the end. Because he'd never seen it, I said to him, well, and they said, if you want to use it any time, go ahead. So we kind of stuck Hellraiser on there and saw it on this big screen with a big sound system going on. It was, it was good. It was interesting. I think it's only really dated with the wigs. The wigs look very 80s, and some of the costumes look very kind of big shoulder pads and stuff. But... No, we, we both think that it's, it's held up very well. Uh -huh. Right, well, thank you very much, Simon, for talking to us. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, no, it's lovely to meet you both.
Thank you. Cheers. So that was Simon Bamford. Very nice. They all were, in fact. Everyone was so lovely. Yeah, it was so kind to us to uh, give us these interviews, and everyone was so gracious and really, really lovely. Really, you know, answered all our questions and more. Yeah. Yeah. Some things off mic, which we can't divulge to you. So that was fun. But let's, let's move straight on to the next one. Oliver Smith, who played Frank the Monster and Browning in the second one. Here we go. So we're now here with Oliver Smith, who played Frank the Monster in the first film and Browning in the second film. Hello, Oliver. Hi. How do you do? I'm very well, thank you. Um, now, a couple of questions about Hellraiser. First of all, what was your first reaction when you saw the makeup you were going to be wearing for the first film? Uh, well, uh, let me put it like this. The, um, Clyde Barker was looking for a skinny actor to play this part. Uh, so I went along as a skinny actor and got the part. I don't know how many other skinny actors they saw, but anyway, I met Clive. He was absolutely charming, lovely, got the part, uh, and he explained to me that there would be uh, a, a great deal of prosthetics goings on in the makeup department. Uh, would I object to that? Not at all. Uh, so uh, that was cool. The only problem was when we got to Teddington, uh, I, they had to plaster cast the entirety of my head uh, and I couldn't do it, uh, with the straws up the nostrils and that. And I couldn't do it. It was uh, claustrophobia set in. So they very kindly said, don't worry, we'll work around you. So I eventually had my head done. Six hours makeup down to four hours, uh, done in little pieces. Quarter pieces on the face and the neck and until the head and, and over the head. Uh, that's it. So it's, it's a good luck story, considering I chickened out of being, um, yes, claustrophobized. And what was, your, what was your first reaction when you saw the final film? When I saw? The final film, The Hellraiser. Uh, well, we were thought of it. It goes like this. Uh, it wasn't the, great, the biggest budget movie in the world, uh, but the, um, the money boys from LA came over. They were so pleased with the rushes. What they did, if in effect, I think I'm right, I don't quote me, but roughly speaking, they were so pleased with the rushes, they upped the budget and extended the shoot. So we got to round off, round off the rough edges, tie up a few shoelaces, and ended up with a, you know, what came. A cult horror movie classic. But nobody knew that at the time. Did you have no idea that it was become as no big as... No idea. It? Nobody had, had a clue at all. Nobody had a clue. Except that uh, I, the end product was deserved from one point of view alone. Hard work from every department, great warmth, camaraderie, the best working atmosphere you could ever ask for on any job. And so, from that point of view, utterly deserved. And uh, three cheers to Clive Barker for being such a splendid chap. Oh, absolutely. We agree. So, moving on to Hellraiser 2, then, you were brought back to play the same character yes. and also a different character, the Browning. Uh, indeed. Utterly flattered to be... Uh, it's almost like a... Thanks for being in the first one. Uh, we've got a little part for you in the second one. In fact, I played myself as Frank in flashback as well, so I had a couple of contracts going for me. Lucky old me. But that was very thoughtful. So Mr. Browning, uh, yeah, um, was uh, an, an experience, to say the least. Yeah, well, I think some people would... I think I think that that's the most horrific scene in any of the Hellraiser films. Uh, well, it was an extraordinary... One day at Pinewood, uh, that was, um, and um, I worked with my old mate, Ken Cranham. Um, he's a, an, an actor. He's, he's a chum of mine. We're not bosom pals, but I've worked with him before. Uh, so we knew each other. Um, so that was an exciting day at Pinewood. Long, long... Uh, drawn out, extremely tiring, and having to maintain, what do you call it, an element of, what is the word? Keep the adrenaline going. Over, so, take after take of screaming the same line over and over Intensity? again. Intensity? Yes. When, when you, you were ducking into sort of a, a lethargic state of um, non-actability, and when you had to sort of... 
called cut because you were crap and then work <laughs> yourself back up into a frenzy for, for doing it again so it was a very another good day on good day at, at the ranch uh, on the acting front uh, on reflection highly enjoyable and um, a little present back in my dressing room at the end of the day was a little bottle of whiskey with dear Ollie sorry it's been such a long hard day enjoy <laughs> very sweet. nice it sounds like you had a really good time on both both making both the films uh, I did I did and uh, as I said the atmosphere is all to do with it and any job any acting job you do whether it's theatre television whatever if you have a platform uh, 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 to, to work from like that it can it's going to end up as good as it's going to be so yes three cheers for working with cheerful souls <laughs> thank you very much Oliver. thank you for your time thanks You're very most much. welcome I hope it wasn't too waffly no it was lovely thank you very much cheers there we go Oliver Smith Proper gent, bless him. Fantastic Oliver Smith. <laughs> Fantastic Oliver Smith, as we mentioned <laughs> in the podcast. Okay, and the final Cenobite, well, apart from the big one, of course, the final one that we interviewed was Nicholas Vince, who plays Chatterer. One of our, I think he's possibly our favourite Cenobite, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And for a lot of fans, he's, he's second favourite to Pinhead, but I think he's the favourite of the Minions. So here we go, here's our interview with Nicholas Vince. Right, well, we're now having a chat with Nicholas Vince, who plays Chatterer in the first two films. Hello, Nick. Hello. So let's, let's crack straight on with, with the makeup, the Chatterer makeup. What was your first reaction when you saw what the makeup was going to be? Well, what, the first time I encountered the makeup and what it was going to be was when I went out to um, Shepperton Studios, to the uh, makeup studio, to have my cast done. And I was met at the door by one of the lads who was working uh, for them. And he just said, oh, we'll just take you and introduce you to Bob Keane. Uh, so I got introduced to Bob Keane. I said, hi, this is Nick Vince. Bob Keane, oh, you're poor bastard. Why are you calling me poor bastard? He said, because you won't be able to see very much. And he kind of held his fist between my eyes. And he said, you know, that's about the vision you're going to be able to get. And he'd lied. I didn't even get that amount of vision. So. Once you've gone through the whole process of the cast and so on, and then in the original sketches, Chatterer had sharp teeth. Um, and then the next thing I knew when we talked to Clive, he said, actually changed it, we're going to, he's just gonna, we're gonna take a cast of your teeth. So the teeth that you see that are Chatterer's teeth are a teeth, a cast of my teeth. That's what my teeth used to look like. Um, and so it was kind of, that was kind of cool that they, they, they used that and it was kind of close to me. But yeah, that was my first reaction was I was poor bastard, basically. Okay. Now we've mentioned this in the, in the podcast, but we think, in my opinion, the makeup, the chatter makeup is possibly the most horrific film makeup I've ever seen on mm. film. Was there any part of you that thought it might be a bit too much for audiences? I didn't. The, uh, there's two incidents, really. Um, in the second movie we did when we uh, did Hellraiser 2, we were called back to do the publicity shoot of all the four Cenobites together. And I, in fact, the photographs that we see, the foursomes that Doug sells on his uh, website of the four Cenobites together. If you cut the chattering Cenobite out, those are the publicity stills that we use because they just decided exactly as you've just described. It was too horrific. They couldn't use the chattering Cenobite. It was too disturbing an image to put on public display, to put on posters and so on. You, you could only see him in the cinema. Um, so, I, I was disappointed actually, and I thought, hold on, 
okay, who wasn't on the first, he was never on the posters, but you, d you saw him in some of the little lobby cards on the first movie, uh, uh, you saw him there. So yes, I, not in my opinion, but it's really weird because for me, of course, it's become very natural and I was there as part of the process and so on and this is what the chatter was. And when you're kind of surrounded by that during the whole making of it as well, you kind of become desensitized. So I, I think it's very difficult when you're part of it to really gauge what it is if you've only just seen it for the first time and, and a completely blank outsider's view of it. So, um, yeah. That's, that's amazing to hear because when I, I saw this film when I was quite young, and I remember having serious nightmares about your character, mm. but being so fascinated by it, but actually, you know, being genuinely terrified yeah. about it. And then you kind of talk about it as in, you know, I was there on the set and it was okay. <laughs> it's amazing just to hear that juxtaposition. Well, the, I think the curious thing is that the, the effectiveness of the makeup is that it's, on the, on the set, it was very, very effective. Um, one of the girls had lost, I think it was her father, previously, uh, just before start, and had been there and seen him and was just really disturbed by the dead bodies that were lying, you know, the, the dead bodies that are lying around. So I think, yes, I think you do become desensitized to it, as, as, as I as described. But, um, yeah. And did you have any idea when you were making the film that it might become as big as it has? No. If I'm honest, I mean, we knew it was exciting, we knew it was different, we knew it was Clive. I mean, he'd done the Books of Blood, they'd been extraordinarily well received, and love Clive's work and the short stories. Uh, and how can you tell? It's, you're an actor, you know, you're really grateful for the work. It's re you're really grateful you're working with some really cool people, that it's exciting, and it's making movies. It was my first ever movie, so that was exciting as well. That's kind of what you felt about it rather than kind of thinking, well, you hope it's going to do well, but you've got no real vision of what it might do or might become. And do you remember when you first discovered or heard that it was becoming really big? I suppose... I suppose ten years afterwards, I mean, it was successful. Um, I didn't get repeat fees up to you. So I don't know how successful it was going to be because they do a buyout, you, 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 which is fair enough. Um, so you kind of had no real, just knew it was around and it's kind of conscious every time I went into WH Smith, you, it was always on the shelf, it's there for 5.99, it was always there, you know, and then 10 years after we did it, we were invited across to do, to go to Boston um, and do it and we did this show and it was okay, it was kind of an interesting experience, it wasn't incredibly busy and then when about you know around about the 20th anniversary and about half a dozen years ago we i started getting calls from doug bradley saying listen i'm doing these things in the states they really kind of like you to come along and do that and then you just think wow that is amazing the, you know the people and you were talking about phil about not seeing it when you were quite young and I was always amazed at the youth of the people I was signing autographs for, thinking, how, hold on, you say you saw this 10 years ago, how old were you when you first well, saw we've it? We've talked about this, because in America, of course, it was an R-rated film, which meant that any kid could see it if they had an adult with them. Really? Yeah. Oh, is, is that what R meant? Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, and, and any, if they 
had an adult with them, any kid could go and see it. Right, right. Uh, well, I mean, it seems to be the thing that uh, babysitters or older siblings would say, I'll bet you $10 that you can't watch this movie. There's that as well. As soon as yeah. it came out on video, then everyone was yeah. watching it. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I saw, it my, I saw it at my friend's house because right. my mum and dad would never, ever... No. And no, so, yes. yeah, yeah. And I came home terrified, and they were really. Well, what have you been doing? And I was like, No, I'm fine. I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> How old were you? Uh, I was like 11, I think. Right, right. It is very. But then I think it's the age at which you're getting really interested in horror in inverted commas because it's all about death and mystery and life and and, and those big questions. Um, one thing I was going to say is I think your performance comes across really strongly the physicality and there's a real atmosphere that comes out of the character I don't know that's obviously you that's yeah. your you know your acting I guess but how hard was that to do considering you must have been really constrained by what you know the costume and everything it, this is kind of carries on from a conversation I was having last night uh, with the guys is that creativity so often comes out of restriction I couldn't do much. When Clive had envisaged the character and when we'd originally talked about it, Chattering Cenobite was like this chattering monkey. He was very agile, he was going to be leaping around, and it was almost like you had the three Cenobites and the family dog. And the Cenobites set the, do set the dog on the person. When, and it's really weird, see, it was when we did a costume makeup and he got me to uh, crouch down, and he just, it was the knees. You know if you're in a pair of jeans, all the, all the uh, material folds out of the side and you can see it's not flesh. You can see that this is leather and it's not attached and it's a costume. And you think, you know, that just doesn't work because a lot of the times the idea was that I would be crouching down uh, and using some of my other... So it became, like the other Cenobites, this very still recruiter because I couldn't see what I was doing. The first entrance Literally, when I was doing the first entrance, as the chattering Cenobite comes through the wall, I had a nice little ramp. And that's what I remember this is one of the first bits of filming that I did. I was so impressed because I said, okay, as he's walking forward, because of the, the camera angles and so on, approaching Ashley, the, the, um, they had to build a ramp for me. And it needed to be about four inches at one end and about four foot long. And then next, and all I could hear was sawing, hammering, shh, shh, shh. And five minutes later, they said, okay, if you just step up onto the ramp, and it was absolutely right, it was absolutely pitch perfect. And then they gave me a little sandbag to, so that my feet could, so as I walk forward, and then it's all done by feel and touch. And could you, when, the, the, uh, when um, Andrew Robinson's trying to leave at the end, trying, you know, all the Cenobites are there, when Frank, Frank gets his comeuppance, could have done a hard shove physically, I could have done, but it just didn't seem right because you've the chatterer doesn't actually have to do anything. You know, he is such an intimidating character. And one of the Ashley Lawrence sold it so beautifully that scene where the chatterer takes two fingers and they go towards her mouth. The instinctive reaction is keep your mouth shut. It's not to open it so they can shove it down your throat. It's counterintuitive, but she sold that so well which really helped that idea of the chat. This creature is so shocking. You lose your, your, your senses about it. And it all came out of the fact that really, I couldn't hear, speak, or see when I'm doing that. So again, the, the, the other thing I was talking to Simon about this yesterday was that remember this 
class that I'd done at drama, uh, drama school up at Mount View in North London, where the uh, teacher, Gwyneth, had got us to, she said, okay, you have to act angry with your nose. All that you can think about is your nose, and you have to act anger with your nose. And, it was, uh, and then she said, okay, you've got to act happy with your thumb. And it was, uh, you know, uh, you know you have, and then she was just saying, you've just got to concentrate all the emotion into that one thing. And then that's really what Chantra was. I just used that, like, like, okay, this is what this is about. And the other lesson, of course, was that we had a very good uh, mime teacher. And one day he said, right, you've all got to bring in cardboard boxes. And he just got us all to put cardboard boxes on our head. We didn't write, draw on them or anything. They were all just cardboard boxes. He said, right, now create characters create a character out of that box. So the other thing is it's just mask work. It is pure mask work where you just invest the emotion in the costume and the mask work and so on. So that's the kind of the process behind it, basically. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for talking to us, Nick. It's that's been an absolute pleasure. pleasure. Thank well, you very much. Thank you for taking this, and I look forward to listening to this. All good. Excellent. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. And that was Nicholas Vince. And so there's only one left. Ladies and gentlemen, we managed, we were so lucky to actually get to sit down and speak to Doug Bradley for a while, which we didn't think we'd get, did we? we no, no, I really didn't think he would uh, give us an interview, but he's a lovely man, very kind. Yeah, really nice chap. In fact, they all were really lovely, all yeah. of them. But without further ado, here is our interview with Doug Bradley. Right, well, we're now here with the man himself, Doug Bradley, who, of course, plays Pinhead. Needs no introduction. Hello, Doug. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? All right, thank you. Thanks very much. Right, so first of all, let's go straight back to the first film. Okay. Um, What was your... 25 years ago. (laughs) Well, exactly. What was your first reaction when you read the script? Uh, This is brilliant. (laughs) I had already read The Hellbound Heart. Of course, I I had worked with... um, Clive in theatre for 10 years before Hellraiser came along so it was it was a very different experience to just receiving a script as an actor of course I, I was kind of already part of the, the warp and the weft of his creative world so it was it was already very familiar territory mm-hmm. for me and there was there was a lot in in Pinhead that I could relate to other characters that Clive had created, indeed other characters that I had played. So I, I, I was, I kind of, I think, I like to think I was kind of feeling some of the beats that Clive was intending uh, for Pinhead intuitively, mm-hmm. without having to kind of sweat about it or do a lot of research. It, it was kind of, to some extent, there because I had been part of his imaginative universe for a long time. Okay, brilliant. And what about the makeup? What was your reaction the first time you put the makeup on and looked in the mirror? Um, shock and awe, I think, are the, are the buzzwords here. I've said many times I make no apologies for it, although I had read, read the script a lot and I had talked to Clive a lot and I had kind of tried to do what research I could do. 95% of what I did with Pinhead came from spending 20 minutes uh, just looking in the mirror the first time that the makeup was applied, which was for the screen test. And it was just a a whole 
whole panoply of reactions and, and responses and feelings, some of which were counter to what you would expect. I mean, I, you know, I, look, I, I was approaching it with, he does quote signs in the air, I'm playing a monster in a horror movie. But actually, when, when I, of course, there was a, there was a great sense of regality and power, and evil goes without saying, and etc. But there were also, there was a, a sense of melancholy, sense of loss, and of course, it's it's a passive image because it's an image of received pain. It invites the viewer to simply make sense of what they're looking at. And I've always said that in a sense, what the image of Pinhead says is, look what I did to myself. Now imagine what I could do to you if I had a mind. So all of this was, was coming back at me. And then of course I started, you know, so what happens if I raise an eyebrow or frown a little or smile a little or try saying I'll tear your soul we will tear your soul apart or no tears please it's a waste of good suffering or etc um, uh, and it was all very exciting mm. and had you seen the makeup for the other Cenobites in the first one before that first day you had on set with them or was that a surprise to you as well wow that's a good question um, I, I honestly don't remember um, I suspect I hadn't I don't think any of us had. I mean, I don't think I had. I had seen um, sketches of what Pinhead would look like, so I guess I must have seen sketches of what Butterball and Chatter and the female Cenobite would look like. But I, I'm sure I, I, I had not seen them. No, I can't have seen the makeup until. So, what was your reaction? On I, well, again, I, I have to say, I, I don't really remember, but. Um, uh, I mean, I have very clear images from through the making of the film. Well, you know, Bob, Bob Keane, all of Bob Keane's team, um, Jeff Portas, who uh, designed my makeup with Clive and worked very closely with me, but all, all of Bob Keane's team were superbly creative. Um, and they were, they were an, an absolute gift to work with. And the, uh, all the makeups were just extraordinary yeah when did you first realize how how big the film was becoming in the outside world that would I mean by slow degrees um, Penhead was on the front cover of Time Out when Hellraiser was launched but uh, but I suppose at that point I mean I was kind of hoping we'd make a bit of a splash when we were released I don't think I, I never saw this long game mm. coming not for a heartbeat I hoped I, I knew that we were making something good I knew we were making something original and thought-provoking and something that was swimming against the grain of the general run of horror movies around at the time but I it, for me it, personally it wasn't really uh, and then I think Pinhead got on the poster for the first film by default. I think I'm right in saying, Clive will put you right with this, I think that they they wanted to put the skinned Frank on the poster first, but it was vetoed. 
as you know a, a guy with no skin on on bus stops and whatever <laughs> not acceptable guy with nails banged in his head no problem <laughs> of course, yeah. um, and I was getting I remember Clive calling me from the back of a car in LA saying do you know you are on billboards 20 feet high over Sunset Strip people sent me postcards from Australia and, you're all over this town for me it wasn't it really wasn't until Hellbound was made and released I, I was not involved in any of the publicity for Hellraiser. I got involved in the publicity for Hellbound, but it was even after that when we were we were in the middle of shooting Nightbreed, and I was invited uh, by Tony Timpone, the editor of Fangoria, to go out to the Fangoria's Weekend of Horrors in Los Angeles in spring of '89 the first convention I'd ever been to no idea what to expect and I was just absolutely swamped for the whole weekend that was the first time I was confronted by what was happening here in fandom yeah um, and it hasn't that started a waltz which we're still dancing 20 20 22 years later right so let's talk about the character for a moment if we may so when the sequels came along you they added the Elliot Spencer character to, yes. to Pinhead. How did that change your portrayal of the character, and how was your portrayal different to that of the first film? Well, I, 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 I hope it wasn't different. I tried not to make it different. Um, it was certainly in the, in the second film. Um, some, of the, some of that aspect of the sense of melancholy I felt I had I had made a decision for myself I talked to Clive I knew that he had once been human but we never talked about a backstory did you decide so, on one yourself no I I knew that he'd been I didn't know whether that was last week 10 years ago 100 years ago 5,000 years ago um, I didn't I didn't in a way want to explore too far back with that I was happy to to have that in, in my head that he was in mourning for a humanity that he could not really any longer remember that also helped me to make sense of why he was so interested in people mm. because he's not like the boogeyman he doesn't he's not hiding around corners with a stiletto blade waiting to jump you you have to want to find the box, you have to find the box, you have to solve the puzzle and open the box with the right motivation before you're ever going to encounter this guy. Mm -hmm. And then he wants to stop and have a good conversation yeah. and tease you out and find out what it is that makes you tick and your etc. Um, so when it came to Hellbound and Clive and Pete had started the backstory of Elliot Spencer. I mean, it, it just it fit perfectly with that process, and of course, still in Hellbound for Pinhead, right up to the point at which Kirsty shows him the photograph, he is still not conscious of that memory of the specific human being um, that he was. Um, in part three. 
I did change the performance because the character had changed. In part three, he's out of the box. He's not bound by the rules. He's a very rule-bound creature, Pinhead. Very rule-bound. Um, and I'd, I'd said in the, in the, the, through making the first film, I'd realized, of course, he's not the monster of the film. Frank and Julia are the monsters. And Pinhead is really a, he's almost like an, a referee, an umpire, an impartial judge. Um, so in part three, that changes. Um, and you've got the, the conflict between Pinhead and Elliot, which resolves itself and he's back in the box. So for part four, I wanted to take it back to the beats in the first film. I mean, it, it's, always, it's a different balancing act. I've made mistakes. I loosened him up too much. Clive, in the first few days of filming, was all, always giving me one note, only one note. Uh, he, we'd do a take and he would say, um, it's great, that's, it really is great. Um, just take it down a bit, just do less. So I'd do that and he would say, this, it's, it, I can't tell you how good this is, it's great, it really is great, just do less. I'd take it down again and he'd say, just do less. And it's very difficult as an actor because you wind up feeling like you're just standing still speaking words and that's exactly what he was trying to push me to do um, because you have to make friends with the makeup mm. and and actually on Hellra Hellraiser I, I desperately wanted to see the, the dailies they won't let you but I wanted to see externally what that makeup was doing because that's the bit I can't see. Um, what he was trying to say to me is when you're, when you're not doing anything, when your face is blank and you put those words out of that makeup and put it 20 feet high on a cinema screen, it's gonna blow people's socks off. But if you over egg it, it's going to diminish in power. Um, and I did, I was, I would be the first to put my hand up and say that I had to keep slapping myself on the wrists in, in later movies because inevitably I would want to kind of break out of those restraints and I had to keep telling myself, no, don't do that, pull it back, pull it back. What do you think about the evolution of the character Pinhead through all the sequels? Uh, I, I thought the evolution of the character up to part four, fine. Part five, I think, is not even worth talking about because there's there's no development of character in there at all. I mean, I'm in, you know, I turn up at the front door and then I deliver a little moral lecture at the end and that's it. Part six, I thought, was interesting because, again, it w was very, very much, very consciously going back to first um, motifs. And Rick Bota came in for the first time and, of course, Ashley came back in. So it was that pinhead Kirsty confrontation revisited Rick was very concerned to go take it back to where it had been and seven and eight a kind of the the same process happening and part of this is the fault of dimension films because after part four after bloodline 
we get booted straight to DVD, yeah. and then Inferno, Bloodseeker, and Deda are all pre-existing screenplays that have been kicking around that got tweaked to become a Hellraiser film. And that was a process I didn't really consciously notice was happening. Mm -hmm. In retrospect, it makes me slightly annoyed that, that they didn't make an act of faith to go out to writers. And there's some fairly heavyweight writers out there who are Hellraiser fans who would have been more than happy to offer their original Hellraiser story. Um, we've seen that in, you know, in, yeah. in books like this, The Hellbound Heart, what writers will do when given an idea that lights up their imagination. And there was an element, a degree to which, you know, it was uh, the way that the character was being treated was formulaic because it was, people weren't exploring the character, they weren't dealing with the character head on. He'd kind of turn up and do something vaguely unpleasant and go away again. And then there was a was always a feeling like as soon as Pinhead arrived in the stories, the writers wanted to get him out of the way and write for the for the human people. A process I even observed happening, to be honest, when we were filming. Yeah. Directors almost seemed reluctant to spend time working on the pinhead stuff mm -hmm. but they'd devote endless time to working with the makes quote signs again real actors yeah i think a lot of fans find it quite frustrating how little you are in the later films as well i know certainly fans have said to me that they were especially angry with part five where i am barely in the film which you know that well that's okay but then don't the the only image on the front of the dvd is Pinhead. Yeah, we mentioned this on the podcast. It yeah. seems really silly. Yeah. And also, what I never quite... Un I mean, I, I was, by then, I was by far and away the most expensive element. Of, I would have thought, if I'm paying you that much money and flying you first class from London to Los Angeles to make this film, I'm going to get my money's worth out of you. So it seems strange to me. I could almost calculate on Inferno what I was being paid by the take. <laughs> and it was very nice. <laughs> Speaking of the sequels, do you have a favourite sequel in terms of either your experiences making the film or the finished film as a as a movie? Um, that, that's uh, Hellraiser three. Yeah, yeah. A, a lot of fans would agree with you. I think. Slightly ahead of Hellbound. Okay. My only misgivings with Hellbound are that um, too many storylines. Mm -hmm when you're coming down to the last 20 minutes of the film you know and you've got you've got Channard's story Channard and Julia's story Julia and Kirsty's story Kirsty and Tiffany's story um, Kirsty's own story searching for her father in hell you've got Kirsty and Pinhead and then Pinhead and Channard developing and I always felt like there was there's, there's no climax in the film mm. And the fans have always said to me, and who would I be to disagree with them, that for them the climax of the film was, or should have been, that confrontation between Pinhead, the dark Pope of Hell or whatever, um, and Channard, the pretender to the throne, whereas it, it gets kind of thrown away because all the other storylines are going, we haven't been resolved and we need to, but there's only ten minutes of film left and everybody's hurtling towards the credits kind of, 
trying to tie up their own storylines. Yeah. Um, part four, I have a lot of time for. I mean, Bloodline is a long conversation. <laughs> yeah, so we um, gather. <laughs> uh, even so, I you know it's a miracle that there's any movie to be to be released, and it's not bad. No. Um, the only the only film of the series that I don't care for is Inferno, okay. and that's not just because I'm barely in it. I just don't think it works. Okay, fair enough. I think. Okay, I think that's about it. Thank you very much for your time, Doug. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. You're very welcome. Um, and any time, come seek me out. Good luck with the podcast. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you. So there we go. We hope you enjoyed those interviews. If there were some questions that you wished we'd answered and we didn't, then sorry about that. But we think we got quite a good set of interviews there. We were very pleased with what we got. And hopefully we'll do some more of these interviews in the future at different places. Yeah, let us know any questions that you do want us to ask, because um, I'm sure we'll be talking to all these guys and girls again. Yeah, we managed to cre create contacts with most of them, in fact, so hopefully we'll be speaking to them again at some point. They're all very interested in the podcast. And Hello, if you're listening, guys. Thank you very much for your interviews. And to you listening at home, thank you once more. And keep listening. And that's it for this episode. So thanks again. Goodbye from us at the Hellraiser podcast. Goodbye. Goodbye.